We're going to be looking at verse 25. The title of this message is The Mystery of God. Why the mystery? Why all the mystery? And then also know the meaning of the cross that you wear. My with my two boys this last week, and they're both uh, wearing a cross down. I think they know what, what it means, so this is not for them, but I want us to bear weight of the, the, the depth of a cross. How many of you wear a cross of some sort uh, currently? Several of you. I uh, was uh, recently told by somebody that the cross has become more popular. I wasn't aware of it. They said, just look and watch. They said this. They said, pay attention to two things. Pay attention to how many people's tattoo is now of the cross, uh, which uh, is a common occurrence. Everybody, it seems, if, if my wife says, if you wanted to be a rebel in our generation, you went and got a tattoo. If you want to be a rebel in this generation, don't get a tattoo. <laughs> because everybody has one. But just pay attention to how much people are getting a tattoo of the cross, and then also pay attention to how many people are wearing a cross, either earrings or necklace or, or something like that. And it is, it is, I guess you could say, in style currently. We need to understand the, the weight of what that cross is all about. If you look with me in Romans chapter 16, Verse 25, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Here, here's, our, here's our phrase we're looking at today. According to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience of the faith. If you go back to verse 25, the mystery kept secret since the world began. Why the mystery? Uh, the word mystery here, uh, mysterious, uh, means something that is hidden, a thing that is kept hidden or kept secret, something that's not easily seeable or knowable or easily understood, but then once you see the Mystery, or once you then hear the secret, you you go, oh, that all makes sense. It now seems to come alive. My family, uh, we do love a good mystery. We like mystery shows and and things like that. My life, my wife especially loves mysteries, and especially the ones where the wife kills the husband. Praise. <laughs> I'm not. I'm trying not to read into that, but it's it's going on for years. And so, if something happens to me at some point, she would be worth investigation. Just, just laying that out there. Uh, the mystery is suspense. It's not knowing, and then when it becomes known, it, it there's something almost satisfying about it. And when you find the end of it, or the result of it, or or the final culmination of it. And so there is uh, something here that God is saying. Think about this. God has kept a secret. It says uh, this mystery kept secret since the world began. And so today what I want to look at is the answer to this question, why the mystery? Next week we're going to look at what is the mystery, and the following week we're going to look at uh, how, how do we come to know 
the answer to the mystery, or how is the mystery spread? So today, why is the mystery? Why would God hide something, keep secret something? Think about this. Since the beginning of the world, when he created the heavens and the earth and the planet and the stars and all these things, he had a secret. He had something he would not say, something he would not tell. It was mysteriously kept by God until a certain time, and, and of course now it's been revealed. So why the secrecy since the world began? To answer that question, I want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You can turn there if you like, or you can look at it here on the screen with me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it's actually just probably one more page over uh, in your Bible there. Uh, the first five verses, I've told you many times, are the verses that I often would quote before I would preach back when I used to be a revival preacher. And I've done this many times if I ever travel to preach somewhere. Uh, and people don't know me, I don't give some introduction about myself, I'll usually read these first five verses. I really like to read them before I preach because it sort of sets the stage for who I want to be as a preacher and who I trust God to be as I preach. So let me just read them. I didn't plan on doing that, but let me read them to you, First Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, brethren, when I come to you, do not come to you with excellency of speech or of wisdom, Declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I am with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling in my speech and my preaching, are not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then he goes on from there after speaking of this wisdom. It's, it's not in the wisdom of men, but the wisdom of God, the power of God. He goes on in verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God, here it is, in a mystery. Paul says, when I preach, verse 7, I preach the wisdom of God, which is a mystery, hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages, for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of men the things which God has prepared for those that love him. So when Paul brings up this mystery, the same one we're looking at in Romans, he says, God did not tell this secret because, I underlined it there on the screen, if he had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so this secret that he kept, this mystery that God kept to himself for generations and years and the passing of time, he kept it for this reason. Because if everybody had known, uh, let's, let's examine who, who all, if, if the devil had known, I don't think the devil knew the answer to this mystery either. If the devil had known, he wouldn't have been working so hard to uh, kill babies, he took other measures. If the devil had known, he would have orchestrated other events than what he did. Or even if the rulers, which is what he says in this passage, the rulers of the age had known, 
they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They would not have allowed Jesus to die on the cross if they had known this secret. So God kept it secret for years and years for one purpose, you could say. So that Jesus could do what he came to do, and that was to die on the cross. Notice the words that it says in that phrase underlined there. Crucified the Lord of glory. Think about those words, crucified, the Lord of glory. These, these words seem to be in opposition to each other. The Lord of glory, the one who reigns with all honor and glory upon him, the weight of deity upon him, that one is going to experience the most heinous death known in the history of the world, the death of a crucifixion, the death of dying on a cross. And had they known that he was the Lord of glory, they would not have crucified Jesus. The word crucifixion is where we get our word excruciating. Our word excruciating, like if you said that was excruciating pain. I often say that when I'm sick. That's excruciating pain. It's, it's far worse than anything I've ever had before. The word excruciating means out of the cross. It is literally the English translation of the original word crucifixion into our language and it comes out excruciating. It's quite possible that the crucifixion, the death of the cross is the most, most painful death ever invented in human time. It is a slow, painful suffering. So why the mystery? Why the secret kept? Because God had something he wanted to accomplish in, in this passage. It says he wanted to accomplish the fact that Jesus would be killed on a cross for our sins, mine and yours. So I want to lift up the cross today and, and, and look at in, in quickly the details of Jesus' death on the cross. I have a brief outline there in your notes. I'm going to go through that as, as we go forward. When Jesus first came, you had... Uh, series of trials that would begin, and he began with Jewish trials. In other words, the people of his own kind brought him to Gethsemane to the temple officials, and he would appear before them at midnight, it seems. This would have been along the time of Thursday at midnight. He was taken first to Anna, Ananias and then to, Sophia, then to Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest for that year. This would have happened between 1 a.m. and daybreak. Jesus was tried before the political Sanhedrin, and he was found guilty there of blasphemy. The guards then blindfolded Jesus and spit on him and struck him in the face with their fists until daybreak. Presumably then, presumably then he was taken to the temple where he was tried before the religious Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and again, again he was found guilty of the crime of blasphemy. But the Jews could not sentence Jesus to a death on the cross. Only Romans could do that. So when the Jews were finished with him, they then turned him over to the Romans and asked the Romans to have him executed by death on the cross. And so Jesus was taken early in the morning out of the temple and to the, what is called the Praetorium or the Fortress of Antonia, the residence of the government and the seat of Pontius Pilate. Jesus was presented to Pilate not as a blasphemer, but rather as a self-appointed king who had 
undermine Roman authority. If you remember the scriptures, Pilate came out and said, I find no fault in this man. Herod Antipas would then uh, examine Jesus. And he found no official charges. And so he returned Jesus back to Pilate. They're typical politicians, isn't it? They, neither one can make a decision. So he sends him back to Pilate again. And Pilate finds no basis for a legal charge against Jesus. But the people in the crowd outside are constantly shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. I don't know how many would have been in the crowd that day, I would assume, and scholars have assumed somewhere in the neighborhood of three to 500 people out there demanding his crucifixion, yelling at the top of their lungs, crucify him. I want to put some perspective on what's taking place here from the perspective of heaven. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who sat on the propitiatorium, the, the, the literal mercy seat of God, which we've discussed often as we've studied Old and New Testament here in our church. That mercy seat was not a box which held those three items inside it. It was a throne with a, a lid on it. So it would have been the very throne of God on which each side were two seraphim, which their sole purpose throughout eternity was to cry out before Jesus, holy, holy, holy. And now that same Jesus, who's become a man and living on this earth, is standing before a crowd of some number of mere mortal men who are now crying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Herod found no fault in him. Pilate found no fault in him. But finally, at the urging of the crowd, they decided to turn him over to this final sentence that he would be crucified. And any crucifixion was, was always preceded with a scourging. In other words, a man would be scourged before he would be hanged upon a cross. And so the scourging would have taken place in its traditional order. Usually the accused would have been placed naked upon a post in the middle of the square where all could see, and flogging would begin from the shoulders down to the upper legs. The whip consisted of strips of leather, metal balls would hit the skin, and bits of bone were also attached to the leather, which would literally strip the skin from someone's body. They would do it either with two different guards taking turns, one on each side of the person, or one who would switch sides and uh, make sure that both sides were bleeding and exposed. It would literally leave strips of skin in, in a person's body and in their back once it was completed. Lots of blood would come out of your body and the blood pressure would fall causing most to fall into some sort of shock. And the human body would decrease in its blood volume, causing the person to become really, really thirsty, which is why in John chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus says, I thirst. I want us now to read, if you would turn with me, you would turn with me to Luke chapter 22 in your Bibles. I want us to read this together. Luke chapter 22, verse 63. 
Luke chapter 22, verse 63. You'll hear you turn it, so I'm going to give you just a second. All right, now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Now turn with me back to Matthew, if you would. Matthew chapter 27 to your left, just a little bit. Matthew chapter 27, we'll start reading in verse 28. twenty-seven, verse 28. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of the skull, they gave him sour wine and mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots. Let me just stop you there at verse 35. It says, then they crucified him. And then it just goes on. It, it let, the scripture leads up to the, goes through the beatings and the mockings and how they made fun of him. And then it says, and then they crucified him, and then it just goes on and gives you more details of more history. But it, it doesn't explain the crucifixion at all. Because they would have understood what those what that first phrase in verse 35 means, and then they crucified him. They would have took in the weight of, of what that statement means. But I'm not sure that we do, so I want to stop in verse 35. Keep your finger in Matthew chapter 27. We're going to come back to verse 35, but I want to stop and explain the crucifixion a little bit more. The cross would have had uh, two parts. We, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. There was one, the main beam of the cross most likely would have stayed in the ground, but the top bar he would have carried, it would have been five to six feet long and weighed 75 to 125 pounds. And so that's the part of the cross that he would have carried. Above that would have been a placard with a title on it. And on that placard or that title place was, was written the, the crime that he was found guilty of. That piece of wood that went above the cross, which is an important component, had written on it the crime that he was found guilty of committing. But on Jesus placard or title above his cross it said this this is the king of the Jews that's the crime he was guilty of that they had found him that this is the king of the Jews and it was written in three different languages the languages of that day 
Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So all could read it and all could know that this is the king of the Jews. Victims were nailed to a cross. Jesus' cross would have been that vertical piece that he would have carried and, and he would have been laid down upon it to be nailed to it for the hanging of death on a cross. Let's speak of his hands. We often, when we talk of the nails in the hands, we, we think of the nails actually going into the hands, but most likely they did not go into the hands, but into the part of the wrist between those two bones. If they were driven into the hand, the, the nails would have ripped out, but being driven into the wrist between the part of the soft flesh there, and you can feel your own arm and feel the soft part there in between those two bones, that's most likely where they would have traditionally placed the nails. These nails held the upper body to the cross. The, the lowering of the body would have hung the, the body's weight on these two nails that we say were in the hands or in the, in, in the wrists there. These would have been very large nails, five to seven inches long. And these nails being placed in that position uh, below the hand would have caused severe nerve damage, which would have been, we use that word, excruciating pain. Once he's secured to the post, having been laid on the ground, once he's secured to that post, they would then lift him up. Let me just stop for just a minute. I, I'm reminded as I speak of that as an illustration I, I used years ago when I was speaking of churchmen like yourselves, who love Jesus, coming under hatred of people who don't love Jesus. And by the way, that's coming in our day. Some of you have already experienced some of it, and, and more is coming where people are going to come against you for loving Jesus, not for any other reason. And it, it's hard if, you, if you're here and you've already ex experienced some sort of attack because of your stance for Jesus or some sort of slander because of your stance for Jesus. It's hard to imagine why somebody would dislike you so much to say something wrong about you or to do something harmful against you. Why would they dislike you so much? Why would they hate you so much? And I want to just say in this concept of looking at his hands being nailed to the cross, you're in good company. Because if you could imagine the, the hammer they would have used to drive a nail to that, of that length and that thickness would have taken about a five pound hammer, not a hammer like you would build a house with, but a hammer more like a sledgehammer. And if you can think of the hatred that it takes to lay a man down on the ground and take a sledgehammer and, and drive a nail into his arm, that takes a lot of hatred to do something like that. So you would be in good company. You would have been then lifted up on this post and hung as it is off the ground with the full weight of his body pulling down on those two arms. Doctors in recent days have suggested that being hung like that, the, the weight of your body would have stretched your arms to some degree as, as possible as long as six inches longer out of sockets, uh, dislocating your elbows and possibly even your shoulders with that kind of weight. 
There were also nails placed into the feet. Um, it's highly likely that Jesus' feet were nailed through the tops. That's often the picture of being nailed together, some would suggest, was the tradition of that day. And the weight of the body here pushes down on these two nails where there is lots of soft tissue and also severe nerve damage from the nails. One of the things you need to understand about the death of the cross is he's already been beaten, so the weight of his body is against that post where he's already had lots of blood loss. And the, 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 the killing of the cross is meant to be slow and torturous. And so a person hanging like that would not have been able to breathe unless they lifted themselves up. And so they would hang down to blow out their breath as they're hanging down. But then to breathe in, the body would, have, would not allow them to take in a breath unless they pulled their body up. And so either pulling with their arms or pushing with their feet and to, to lift their body up so that they could take another breath of air in and then release their body back to the hanging position and, and as slowly as possible letting the air out. This is why the Roman soldiers would often come and break their legs below the kneecap so that it would rush up the, or speed up the death because they could no longer lift themselves up to get a breath. And so if you could imagine the weight of Jesus' body on those nails in his hands and those nails in his feet. This is the excruciating pain of the death of the cross. But Jesus had far more weight on him that day than the, the weight of his body. Jesus on that day had the weight of all of our sins on him. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. And so there would have been far more weight on Jesus on that day than his body. Go back with me now to Matthew chapter 27, verse 35. We'll read it again. I'm going to read it and then pause for you to take in all of its meaning. Then they crucified him. And divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put over his head... The accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Stop there for a moment. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. This is where every one of our superhero movies of modern day would kick in. And, and in, in these movies, that superhero would have come down from the cross and, and destroyed all those people. And, 
and shown himself to be the strongest and the most powerful by the destruction that he would brought on them and the salvation of his own life. And that's what they cry out to Jesus. If you are the son of God, take yourself down off that cross. But because he is the son of God, he kept himself on the cross. Because he is the son of God, God kept a secret, a mystery for generations and years and family after family. They did not know where all this was headed, but this is the culmination of the plan of God that Jesus would be crucified. This is the mystery, the secret kept. Verse 41. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now and he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same things. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Think about this now. With Jesus is hanging on the cross and everything goes dark. There is darkness in the, in the land. It is during the day. From the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, lost Lama Sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This is, he is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, in other words, then look, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Don't take that statement slightly. The veil of the temple we studied when we went through the book of Deuteronomy would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of three foot thick. Not, don't just think of a thick veil like a curtain, uh, like you've seen, seen hanging somewhere, like a felt curtain. You see how thick those felt curtains can be? I've seen one thick as a half an inch. This veil would have been far more thick than that and dense than that. And it, it was torn from the top, starting at the top down to the bottom to say, no mere man has done this. God's tearing this. And that place that was the Holy of Holies that no one could enter, where the presence of God was kept behind the veil in the Holy of Holies, now that veil is being torn from the top to the bottom while Jesus is hanging on the cross. At the same time as that is going on in the temple, outside the earth is quaking, and the rocks are splitting, verse 51. And the graves are opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves afterward were his resurrection. They went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion, that is the soldier, and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. I want us to now read Mark chapter 8. You can turn there if you want, or I'll have it on the screen. Mark chapter 8. 
starting in verse 31. This is the interchange between Jesus and Peter before his death on the cross. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke this word openly. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. He had called the people to himself with his disciples also. He said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. For whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed of when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You get what just happened there? Jesus is teaching before the disciples and seems like many others are around and Jesus says, I'm going to have to die and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, I'll rise again. And Peter says, come over here, Jesus. Come over here just for a minute. He pulls him to the side. He doesn't say it out loud, it seems. Peter just pulls him to the side and, and, and says, not so, Lord. You're not going to do that. That's not going to happen. Happen. And Jesus turns Peter back around and the whole crowd can hear and he says, get behind me, Satan. You're acting like the devil. You're thinking like the world thinks. You're not thinking like God thinks. You see, the reason Peter couldn't see it the way God saw it or the way Jesus saw it is because Peter didn't know this was the mystery. This was the plan since the beginning. This is not some, some plan B or something that's about to happen that he can't stop from happening. This was the plan when he created the heavens and the earth. This is the mystery. And, and here in, in this passage, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is exposing the secret. He's explaining the mystery here for the first time. He's saying there's coming a time very soon when I'm going to die. And I'm going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And I'm going to be killed on the cross. And in three days, I'm going to rise again. And Peter says, no, 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 Lord. That's not what we need to happen. And, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Do you see how this is playing out? The first time the secret is exposed, it's been a mystery up until now. Satan has not known what's going to happen up until now. But all of a sudden, this the, the, the end is coming near and Jesus says, here's what's about to happen. I don't know if Satan just filled Peter's mind here or what happened, but Jesus calls him out. And he goes further than that and he says, if you're going to be my follower, you have to take up your cross as well. And if you will not lose your life for my sake and the gospel, your life will not be saved. And then he makes this comparison in the end. He says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? It's, it's a balance. God often uses a balance. Not a scale, but a balance. You put weights on one side against the other in opposition to see which one's the heaviest. That's a balance. 
Jesus often uses a balance as an illustration, and he does that here. He says, what will it profit a man if he, if he gains the whole world? That's on one side of the balance. You get everything you ever wanted, everything you ever desired, everything money could buy on this side of the balance. But on the other side, he says, and loses his own soul. Put your soul on the other side of the balance. And he says, what can you exchange for your soul? There's nothing you can give to buy back your soul. And he goes on to say, if you're ashamed of me before this adulterous generation, I'll be ashamed of you when you come before my Father and the holy angels. And now I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53. I have these on the screen if you'd like. Isaiah 52, verse 13 and 14. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and, and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, that is his body, was marred more than any man and is formed more than the sons of men. That is to say this, Jesus was not just scourged on that day and not just hung on the cross on that day for a penalty for a crime he had committed. He was scourged that day and he was hung on the cross that day from men who hated him. Men who hated him. Isaiah chapter 53 Verse 3 through 5. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And I'd like us to read Luke chapter 24, 44 through 46. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning thee. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. This passage was written after the resurrection of Jesus, and he's still helping them to understand the mystery of Romans. The secret that God had kept. He's still explaining it to them even here. And he's saying, this is the fulfillment of all that was written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he wanted them to be able to understand and comprehend the scriptures. And now looking back at the scriptures, they can see the, the mystery. This is the aha moment. 
This was in the secret begins to make sense. The mystery begins to come alive. And they can look backwards now after the resurrection of Jesus and say, Oh, now we've seen the plan of God from before time began. That this was his plan all along. That Jesus had to go to the cross and suffer on the cross. And then Acts chapter 4, verse 24 through 28. So then when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God. This is again after the resurrection. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. You see how that comes together? It's further explaining the mystery. He's saying here, he's saying the disciples are now looking backwards again at what Jesus has just went through on the cross and the crucifixion. And they can see how God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything else, he accomplished what even King David had said he would accomplish. And these kings of the earth plotted together and came together. The Lord's kings, Herod and Pilate and, and the rulers of the day of that time and the Gentiles and the religious leaders of that day and that time and Israel and the whole nation together, they came together. But why did they come together? Look at the last sentence. To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. That was the plan of God before the foundation of the world, that Jesus would die on the cross for your sins and my sins so you could be saved, saved eternally. This is a great mystery. Why the mystery? Why the mystery? Why keep the secret? Here's the answer. Because Jesus must be crucified. I, I failed to point that out. I'm going to go back. You can get me back to that passage in Mark where we started. Can you go back to about four slides to the passage in Mark? began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. See the word must. This is what must happen. Jesus must be crucified. That's why the mystery. The mystery was kept so that we would not interfere. And Jesus would go to the cross for our sins. I heard an illustration recently about a man who was on the Titanic when it went down. He was from Scotland. And he lived. He was one of the few who lived with the sinking of the Titanic. He tells the story for years, for the rest of his life, he tells this story. He was out there in the water floating on a piece of lumber where most had gone beneath the waters of the ocean. And he was all alone. 
And finally, another man came floating by on another piece of lumber. And the man said, have you been saved? And he said, no. And the man said to him, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They seemed to just drift away. Some time went along in the night, and he had time to think about that. And before he knew it, that man drifted back to him. And he could see the man again on the other piece of the lumber. And the man said, have you been saved yet? And he said, no. And he said again, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he says he never saw that man again who said that to him. And then alone in the dark of the night, as he lie out there on that piece of wood, he says he cried out to God and said, I'm calling, Lord. Would you save me? And God saved him. That's really simple, isn't it? You don't need an hour to explain how to be saved. You don't need an hour to interpret theology and doctrines and go through thousands of lessons. And you just need to know Jesus died on the cross for me? Okay, I want Jesus to be my Lord and forgive me of my sins. It's that simple. Why is it so simple? Why is it such an act of God's grace? Because God had a plan from the very beginning. It was a mystery. And now the mystery's been exposed so that you can be saved. Well, we started with the cross. With some people wear on a necklace or as an earring. I want you to know that cross is no mere symbol that people wear because it's in style now. That cross, by some, it's the most loved thing that they own. That cross, that same cross, by some, it is the object of their greatest hatred. They hate it more than anything else. Recent studies show, this is true, that there are more martyrs today than there's ever been in the history of the world. More people, not in our country yet, it's coming. More people being killed because they love Jesus and his cross today than ever before in the history of the world. And it's growing every year. And it's coming to America. So if you're going to wear that cross, you better love that cross. You better love the Jesus who died on that cross. And you better understand all that it, all that it holds in its meaning as it is the cross of the place where Jesus' blood was shed. You need to know this. If you're going to wear that cross and you're going to love that cross, you will be hated. And you will be hated more and more as the time goes by. Why the mystery? The mystery was kept so Jesus could die on a cross for your sins. Would you, would you close your eyes and turn with me? Would you thank God for Jesus' death on the cross for you? Would you just personalize that now and begin to thank Him?
you have never been saved. I repeat those words to you again. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you will cry out to Jesus and ask Him to forgive you of your sins and be the Lord of your life, that's simple and you can be saved. If that's what you need to do, would you do that now? Would you pray and say, Lord, save me. I need you in my life. I don't even understand everything about it, but I know I need you, Lord. Would you forgive me and save me? Would you make that your prayer right now if that's who you are? Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for his death on the cross. Let us not take it for granted. Let us not take that cross for granted. And what you did on that cross for granted. We lift up the name of Jesus today. And we say that there's not one greater. We give you all glory and honor and dominion. And we pray that you would be the Lord of our lives, the ruler of our lives. We give everything over to you afresh this morning, Father. Lord, we bless you. And we thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?